0: Welcome to the next edition of The Third Wheel, Herbert Smith Freehill's podcast series on all things ESG in Australia. I'm Tim Stutt partner in HSF's head office advisory team, an Australian lead for ESG. My co-host is Mel Debenham, partner in our Perth office, an expert on business critical environment, planning, heritage, and native title regulation in Australia.
1: It is a mouthful, Tim.
0: It is a little bit, yes, but I, I guess being extraordinary at many things, you'll just have to carry that burden, Mel. Uh, <laughs> turning to today's episode, we're continuing our series on Unlocking ESG Investment in Australia. The last two episodes, we've picked up on different themes from HSF's report on Unlocking ESG Investment. And for today's edition, we're joined by special guest, Catherine Pacey, partner in our Environment Planning and Communities team up in our Brisbane office. Welcome, Catherine.
2: Thank you, Tim. It's great to have you back on, Catherine. Great to be here. I love hanging out with you guys. It's fun. So
0: first question, Catherine, picking up on some of the themes which were brought through the Unlocking ESG Investment Report, it's clear that com- consumers are increasingly demanding that their products are environmentally responsible, but also that companies' supply chains are sustainable as well. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of the key opportunities and challenges that you're seeing for businesses in that space. Sure.
2: Well, it's, if- it's a really exciting space where a lot is happening, and it's a really complicated space to try and work out what's happening um, upstream and downstream um, in your in your value chains. Um, I think firstly, there's there's a lot of companies who have voluntarily come out with um, scope three emissions reduction targets, sustainability targets, um, and generally that's requiring those companies to work with their suppliers and their customers to um, look at ways to reduce their scope one and two emissions and improve their overall sustainability. And that extends to things like waste management, packaging and and all those sorts of things. Um, Tim, I think this is your area of expertise, but the Commonwealth Government has also um, started consulting on their mandatory climate risk reporting regime, um, which is designed to align with international standards. Um, I might let you jump in and talk about what's happening there.
0: I was going to say it's a joint area of expertise, Catherine, and it's soon to be an area of expertise for quite a chunk of corporate Australia. I think actually, um, while this consultation is sort of the first um, first stage, there will be further consultation. There'll be a narrowing down of what the regime looks like. Um, it is an important first step, and it's added um, what the government I think is referring to as contours around. Their proposal for mandatory climate reporting that they've been talking about for a little while. I think some of the um some of the key aspects which um, are particularly relevant and notable are the fact that it's initially intended to apply to listed companies and certain financial institutions. Um, that's helpful guidance on where the initial focus will be. Also, the timing, while it was um, sort of mentioned in the consultation paper in a slightly passing reference, um, i.e. it's not set in stone, but there was a reference to um, the requirements coming in and applying for the 2024 to 2025 financial year, which would actually sort of have Australia on a similar timing to some other jurisdictions or you know, fairly closely matched to some other jurisdictions. Uh, so that was also notable. The fact that it would initially be TCFD aligned reporting is notable because there had been a bit of a question around would it be International Sustainability Standards Board standards aligned from the outset, whereas the government looks to be um, putting us on a path which is TCFD um, aligned, but with the ability to expand into IWSB over time. Um, so that's also notable. And then coming back to the supply chain um, aspect, uh, one of the things which is also notable is the fact that it's intended to incorporate some degree of scope three disclosure, which really does open up um, a world of considerations around data collection, reporting, target setting, um, across value chains, but also in terms of um, climate conscious contracting as well, and the way that a lot of these these uh, relationships are, are sort of formed, documented, monitored, and implemented. Um, so quite a bit, even though it was not a huge consultation paper, quite a bit to chew through. And I think as we get through this initial uh, chunk of it. Um, there will be quite a bit in terms of the further consultation because I think the government will be coming out with a further consultation pack and probably, well, potentially draft legislation um, next year, at which point the draft IWSB standards should hopefully be final IWSB standards and we might have a bit more granularity about what that might look like.
2: Yeah.
1: And Catherine, I'm sure um, you'll come to this later, but some of what we're seeing um, in in the consult on the climate risks reporting, is also replicated um, in a different way in what government is thinking about doing from a Commonwealth environmental approvals perspective in terms yeah. of scope two, uh, scope one and two, I should say, um, with a similar timetable as well. So I think it's another example of sort of the dovetailing together um, of a range of levers and tools around climate from a Commonwealth perspective.
2: Yeah. And I think, I think it's really important that, that government is like, there's, there's a lot of consultation happening. It's like an <laughs> overwhelming amount of consultation out at the moment. But actually, um, having that all happening in parallel where you've got sort of EPBC responses along with climate responses and everything finding its right home, um, and its right scope, I think is, is actually really important for understanding how the whole scheme fits together.
1: And so you've mentioned um, a lot of consultation happening at the moment. What what else is um, active in this space?
2: Uh, Well, there's also the two consultation papers that have been released on the Guarantee of Origin scheme, um, and that's designed to track and verify emissions for hydrogen products um, and also um, eventually to replace the Renewable Energy Certification, which runs out in 2030. Um, So in terms of of upstream and downstream value, it's not just carbon. Um, So government's also got their ministerial advisory group, which has just been announced to um, help achieve the goal of a circular economy by 2030. And there are a lot of announcements around um, product stewardship and changes to the rules around product stewardship that are coming out. Um, And in terms of of um opportunities, um which was your original question, Tim. Not <laughs> to drag us ago. back to the point or anything, Catherine, but yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd hate to bring it you back to the here. actual point, no. Um, but I think I think there's real opportunities in terms of being conscious of where products come from and, and its end used and being really creative with the way um products, particularly packaging and energy, is used and reused. Um, like it, it seems obvious in in some of the sort of consumer goods, but um I think there's there's a real opportunity for companies to get a close relationship with their customers and their suppliers to to really be looking at ways to creatively um ensure that they have some sustainability in their supply chain and, and are improving on it all the time. Mm.
0: That that was definitely um something which was born out in one of the client interviews in the report, which was with Event Group. And they talked about sustainably sourced products and how they were actually able to realise higher prices for that and were willing to pay higher prices for that. They're sort of, being hospitality and entertainment, they are maybe not exact, well, kind of consumer sector focused. Um, they do also have property and and other aspects to them. But it's something which has come up in a few different conversations in different sectors as well, this idea that um, having a sustainable supply chain will unlock premiums for the business, even Mm. in in, um, B2B type businesses as well. I think that also leads to some interesting questions around um, kind of where we were Starting in this discussion around how that's being tested, documented, the data is being collected, re- reported, all of that. As, um, because I do think where you're holding your products or your services out as having sustainability type features. There is a need to be comfortable that that's actually being implemented across the supply chain. So I think that's that's looming as an interesting issue as mm. well.
2: And it, it sort of becomes no, no matter the extent to which you verify it, there still has to be that element of trust between um, between the sort of supplier and and the end user, doesn't it? Because you're effectively reporting on someone else's behavior and someone else's use. So, yeah, yep. challenging.
1: One of the other key themes in our report was around confidence in investment decisions and a a number of aspects um, that assist with confidence or sort of take away from confidence are articulated in the report. Um, But obviously approvals for activities are central um, and Scope 3 emissions associated with, with with project activities are becoming more and more important Catherine, the Queensland Land Court recently handed down its decision in Waratah Coal, which considered Scope 3 emissions from a coal mine and the Land Court recommended the project be refused. What do you think this might mean um, for future fossil fuel projects and, you know, the sort of confidence um, proponents might have in making investment
2: decisions for those types of activities? It's, it's certainly a decision that's caused a lot of excitement. Um, I think beyond the Queensland borders. Um, it's, it's a funny process that leads to these sorts of decisions. So the land court in this process is not acting judicially. It acts administratively and it makes a recommendation to, um, the minister responsible for granting the mining lease and to the chief executive of our Department of Environment to to grant the environmental authority, so it's it's a little bit of a an unusual um, process. Um, the The court was was interesting in that um, in a, in a few places in the judgment, um, a lot of emphasis was placed on this being a judgment unique to this particular coal mine, um, and it was not um not to be taken as sort of a a commentary on fossil fuels generally or or thermal coal mining projects generally but um but i think it still does have have implications um as as we're recording um the decision is still within the period um during which um, judicial review proceedings could be Commenced um, that runs out this week, so it will be interesting to see whether or not it does end up being challenged. Um, probably not dissimilar to the Gloucester decision in New South Wales, though the project was refused on a few grounds, not just just climate change. So, one of the significant things was um, was found by the court to be uncertainty over impacts on um, a nature refuge, mm. um, and that was one of the grounds on which. Um, refusal was recommended, but um, the climate change discussion was was interesting. So this is this is an approval that allows for the extraction and processing, not for the the burning um, combustion of the coal. Um, but despite that, the court found that um, the combustion couldn't sensibly be separated from the extraction. I think is is the wording of the the judgment. Um, and so because the decision-making criteria under the Environmental Protection Act and Mineral Resources Act talks about things like public interest, um, the court found that that was enough for them to be able to consider the, the scope three commissions. So um, the court, because it acts in an administrative capacity, um, also considers human rights grounds under the Queensland Human Rights Act. Um so that was also a basis on which the court recommended refusal, um, and that was that the, the economic and social benefits um didn't outweigh the, the impacts. So certainly an interesting decision and um we'll be keenly watching to see whether or not um it does end up being reviewed. Watch this space.
0: Regulatory uncertainty and inconsistency was cited as the only barrier to ESG investment unique to Australia um, in in the report that we did. We've talked about the consultation processes underway, um, but it looks like some of that regulatory uncertainty may let up soon. Um, I guess as well as consultation processes, there's a number of different reviews as well. Catherine, can you talk us through some of the uh, the regulatory change and, and challenges going on at the moment around environmental protection and emissions reduction?
2: Sure. Well, um, there is a lot of consultation. There's, there's a lot of reading for those of us who work in this space to do. <laughs>
0: what yeah, else are we think. going to do over the Christmas break? <laughs> I think
2: we're we're all a little a little bit tired, but much more to read. Um, so I think we'll we'll start with the emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions um, front. So um, September, uh, Australia got the Climate Change Acts, there were two of them, um, and that legislated our greenhouse gas emissions reduction targets and required various Commonwealth entities to consider those emissions reduction targets in, as part of their objects and in their decision making. Uh, The safeguard mechanism is being reviewed. That's another round of consultation that we haven't spoken about yet, Um, but that that applies to um, about 212 ish um, of Australia's biggest emitters. Um, So that is being reviewed with a view to achieving gradual reductions in in greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, Again, we're expecting draft legislation on that March next year um, with the amended scheme to commence on on July. Uh, Australian carbon credit units are being reviewed so that's going to be a really important part of um, ensuring that greenhouse gas emissions reductions can be achieved in a way that provides certainty um, with offsets that have integrity. Um, So that report is going to be provided to the Minister by the end of this year so um, the Minister gets reading over Christmas as well. On the environment front, um, we've had the government response to the independent review of the EPBC Act, which was led by Professor Graham Samuel, and that report was released in 2020. Um, there's a lot in that response. Again, we're seeing um, draft legislation next year, so much more reading to do in 2023. Um, Probably the the headlines from that is that the climate trigger wasn't recommended, um, but project proponents will have to disclose scope one and two emissions, um, and they will also need to consider how their project aligns with Australia's um, emissions reduction targets. Um, big focus on regional planning. So you're not doing project by project um, assessments, and there will be a traffic light system for for development from no-go zones to, to development zones. Um, I think that's going to take a little while to come through with the amount of work that will be required to get those regional plans into place. Uh, National environmental standards, um, which has been floating around for a while, um, have been committed to, so they will start to be developed and consulted on, just in case you thought we were running out of consultation. Um, environmental offsets are going to be um, reformed. Um, and, Mel, this is probably um, one that you're better placed to talk about than me, but there's there's a real focus um, in First Nations' involvement in, in decision-making and reforming cultural heritage laws as well.
1: That's right, and um, a separate legislative review process for Commonwealth uh, Aboriginal cultural heritage laws is in place, but... From an environment perspective, I think the idea of consultation and participation for First Nations people but also community at large um, is a growing theme. It's one that's played out in the courts this year um, in the context of the offshore petroleum regime and the Tipa-Kalipa proceedings. Interestingly, the Court of Appeal um, recently linked the consultation provisions within that offshore petroleum regime back to the EPBC Act. So I think that we will see some of the reasoning in the typical IPA judgments finding its way into the national environmental standard for First Nations consultation and involvement. But it also might play out um, in the legislative reforms, both from an EPBC Act perspective, but also cultural heritage more broadly.
2: So I, I think with all that, we're, we're probably not there yet, but moving towards regulatory certainty. But there's there's a lot of other stuff um, moving around as, as well um, this week. Australia um, was part of the, the COP15 or biodiversity COP um, agreement that was reached in Montreal, which has um, a number of commitments in it around um, I think the headlines are the 3030 target, which is um, protecting 30% of the world's land and, and oceans by 2030. But there's also um, commitments in there around um, urban planning, um, lifting biodiversity standards and environmental assessment, um, land use in terms of use of pesticides and runoff, and, and all those sorts of things. Um, Energy transition is, is huge. Um, so there's there's not only the legislative basis for that, but the states and the Commonwealth are putting a lot in terms of policy funding um, around energy transition, um, particularly around upgrading transmission infrastructure, encouraging renewables projects. Um, we got our first offshore wind zone declared, so, um, so things are happening in that space. Um, and then there's things that the states are doing as well. So, New South Wales with their RESs, um, Queensland with our um, energy and jobs plan. So, there's, there's not just the legislation, I guess. There's, there's also a lot happening at a, at a policy um, level to, to try and get that investment happening in the projects that will make a difference to our energy transition and ESG more broadly.
1: Catherine, there was... A sentence in the government response to the EPBC Act review um, where Minister Plibersek said, um, you know, government is intending to remake Commonwealth environmental laws and I think that's just a bit of a theme in this space where we are seeing a remaking process of laws as they apply to ESG issues um, with much more to come in 2023. So on that note, I would like to thank you for coming on and, and sharing um, a huge amount of information with us um, on this episode. So thank you, Catherine. Thanks for having me. For regular listeners, you'll know that we like to close every episode of The Third Wheel with a fun fact. Now, this is a very self-indulgent fun fact from us today. Um, But did you know, we don't only podcast, but we also blog and blog regularly. So a plug for our Environment Planning and Communities blog, which you can find on hsfnotes.com forward slash Environment Australia. We've spoken today about a huge raft of reform, reviews and consultation that's going on um, and we try to take some of the hard work out of that for you um, by posting regularly on on those updates um, and trying to digest what we're seeing, not just from a regulatory perspective but also from the courts um, and and otherwise. So please take a look at the HSF Notes page. Um, We also have blog posts for climate and many, many other um, issues that might be important to you and your business. So take a look around. Thank you again, Catherine and and Tim, for another excellent episode of The Third Wheel Um, and to you for listening in. We look forward to you joining us next time. Bye for now.
0: In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. And visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com, for more insights relevant to your business.